The Bob Murphy Show, episode 259. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome to the episode of The Bob Murphy Show. So in this episode, I am finishing my two-part response to the recent Michael Malice You're Welcome episode that featured Curtis Yarvin and Dave Smith. So in the previous episode of The Bob Murphy Show, I confined my remarks to the narrow question of whether free trade is an example of a naive policy prescription from the libertarians. All right, and so Yarvin was maintaining that, sure, in certain idealized circumstances, free trade's great. It makes sense. All the arguments the economists go through, given the assumptions they make. But in general, it's a bad idea. And like in our world, for example, it's hollowed out manufacturing capacity in the Midwest, blah, blah, blah. And this is why I'm not a libertarian. Okay, so I, again, in the previous episode, so that would be bobmurphyshow.com slash 258, I responded at length to that line of argument. In this episode, so you're listening to bobmurphyshow.com slash 259 right now, I am going to respond to a different type of attack that Yarvin made. It actually occurred earlier in the episode. It was kind of like basically when they got going. This is what Yarvin said. Because this, is, I think, is more fundamental. The other one was just like a narrowly economic argument, but this one's kind of more sweeping. And it, I think, more directly attacks the essence of Rothbardian libertarianism centered as it is on the non-aggression principle or the NAP. So before I play this clip, I debated whether to give the physics explanation first or after, and I think it makes more sense. Let me quickly give you some background stuff from physics because Yarvin makes two separate physics analogies. And so if I give you the background first, it might help you make sense of what he's saying. So then... I just think that's more efficient than if I play the clip for you. If you don't get what he's saying, it might not sink in. And then if I explain it, you might have to rewind it and listen to him again. So let me just flip the order. Okay, so one of the most famous episodes in the history of the sciences is Albert Einstein coming along and replacing Newtonian mechanics with first special and then general relativity. What Curtis is talking about is he has special relativity in mind. And so here, the way it works is in special relativity just has to do with what happens when objects approach the speed of light, right? So in Einstein's framework, nothing can go faster than light. And the other big postulate of it is that to all observers, so there's no acceleration going on. Everyone's just moving at a constant velocity, but they can be different velocities, right? And so to all observers, the speed of light is constant. And that's not normal, right? Like that's not how stuff works in the everyday world, right? Like if you're looking at a guy throws a 100 mile per hour fastball and you're on a train going past the guy 
at 50 miles an hour, then when he lets the ball out of his hand to you, that ball is going to look like it's either going 150 miles an hour or 50 miles an hour, depending on which way you and the train are going, right? Like if you're going like to the outfield, then the ball is going to look like it's going 150 miles an hour away from you towards the back of the train. But if the train's moving like towards home plate in a straight line, then you're looking at the fastball out your window. It's only going to look like it's going 50 miles an hour, right? Whereas the guy is going to be, look like he's going 50 miles per hour towards the back of the train. And then the, if you looked, he's going to think that the ball's moving away from him at 100 miles per hour, right? So that's how relative velocities work in a Newtonian framework. But if the guy turns on a flashlight and photons start shooting out as he measures them, moving away from him towards home plate at the speed of light, and you're in a train going towards home plate and you're going at half the speed of light and you look at those same photons and measure how fast are they moving away from you towards the front of the train, you might think from your perspective, they're moving at half the speed of light, right? But no, from your perspective, they're moving at exactly the speed of light. And the same is true if you're going towards the outfield in a direct line from home plate through the pitcher's mound. You're going half the speed of light. When you look at those photons that are moving towards the back of the train, that coming out of his flashlight that he turns on as he's standing on the pitcher's mound facing home plate, you might think the photons look like they're moving away from you at 1.5 times the speed of light, but they don't. They look like they're moving away at the speed of light. Okay, so that's weird. And how do you do that? How do you account for that? Or what's the framework, the mathematical framework you use to make sense of all that? And it involves this thing called a Lorenz transformation. So that's spelled L-O-R-E-N-T-Z. And it's named after a physicist, Hendrik Lorenz. I think that's how you pronounce his name. He's Dutch. Interestingly, physicists knew that the speed of light seemed constant to all observers. They knew that like from the 1880s, there's this famous thing called the Michelson-Morley experiments that proved that. I won't get into how that worked. Okay, but they, physicists already knew that what the heck? The fact that the observer was moving relative to a different observer didn't change what the speed of light was to either of them. So they knew that from the 1880s. And Lorenz then came up with a correction to show like, oh, this is what things look like depending on what the velocity, relative velocity is of the observer. All right, so because again, in Newtonian mechanics, you would just add or subtract, right? Remember like the 100 mile per hour fastball and you're in a train going 50 miles per hour. Like, so that's how you do it in a Newtonian framework. But we said that doesn't work in reality. So Lorenz came up with equations. So it's basically... It's like the Newtonian framework, except there's this extra term that you multiply the coordinate by, and it's specifically, it's like one divided by, and then the denominator, it's the square root of one minus the thing's velocity squared divided by the speed of light squared. Okay, so there's this extra term of minus V squared over C squared. And so normally, for most things in everyday life, something's velocity compared to, and C is the speed of light, sorry, if you don't know that. Okay, so normally V squared divided by C squared is going to be a really small number because most things in our everyday experience don't come anywhere close to the speed of light. And so, you know, that thing's velocity squared divided by the speed of light squared is going to be close to zero because the denominator of that thing gets so big. Okay, and so then one minus that something that's close to zero is just basically one. So it's kind of like nothing. But, it's not exactly one 
It's one minus this thing that's almost zero normally, but it's not exactly zero. And then as V gets bigger, that term starts mattering. And in particular, if V got to be actually C, then it would be C squared over C squared. That would be one and be one minus one and be zero. You know, and again, that thing is in the denominator, so it would blow up to infinity, the whole thing. Okay, so Lorenz came up with these equations to show this is how you like augment or transform motion in a coordinate system to keep account of this stuff. And it, it works out in his framework that every observer would think a photon was moving away from that person at the speed of light or towards him, whatever. Okay. So Einstein, with his special relativity, he didn't completely invent from scratch all the equations. He incorporated the Lorenz transformations in there. And what Einstein did, though, was he came up with like a theoretical framework to explain more intuitively why is this happening all right like so in other words like Lorenz said this is the this is how you'd mathematically handle the fact that light has the same velocity to all observers if they're just you know not being accelerated but he didn't really know why whereas Einstein gave a much more satisfactory explanation of this is why the world works the way it works or this is the way to think about it this is the model to use okay and so an analogy people I've seen is to say it's sort of like Kepler's laws versus Newtonian's or Newton's laws, if you're familiar with that framework. So Kepler came up with cool laws explaining like this is planetary motion and like a given planet, like, well, you know, if you drew a line from the sun to a planet, as it's moving around the sun, it sweeps out equal areas in equal time because when it's further away, it doesn't move as fast, but the line is longer. So it's sweeping out more area. And that as it gets closer to the sun, because it's moving in a ellipse around the sun, then, it, you know, it speeds up. Okay. So anyway, Kepler came up with laws like that characterize the planetary motion, but he didn't really have a theoretical framework for why should that be the case, whereas Newton comes along and says, oh, there's this thing called a gravitational force, and it's directly proportional to the mass of the objects, and inversely proportional to the square of the distance, and da, 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 da. and then an implication of Newton's laws were Kepler's laws of planetary motion, right? So Newton kind of gave a more general framework that explained Kepler's laws as a particular example with Einstein. So his framework was true, like in general, and explained Newton's laws as a special case of when the velocity was very small relative to C. Because then in that case, you would say Einstein's laws reduced to Newton's laws. Because there's that term in there, the one minus the V squared over C squared. And that V squared over C squared is basically zero for normal everyday velocities that humans, you know, were likely to have encountered up until the year 1800. Okay, so I don't know if he's going to say it in the exact clip that I'm going to play, but at some point, Yarvin says something like, and then this way, you know, you can't ignore that term anymore. And that's what he's talking about. So Yarvin is saying his theory of politics or whatever, geopolitical reality, the nature of power. I don't know how he describes his framework. He's saying that his has that term in there. Whereas conventional American libertarianism of the Rothbardian flavor, at least, assumes that that term is zero. And so Yarvin is saying, I, Curtis Yarvin, have a more general explanation of everything I can handle everything the libertarians can, but they just basically can handle this special case. So in the libertarian framework, 
Yarvin is saying the libertarians are assuming we're close to a situation of where there's not a lot of initiated aggression. So if we were close to a libertarian utopia, then the libertarian model works, Yarvin says. But if we're far away from it, and there's all kinds of rampant systemic initiation of aggression going on, then the libertarian model is completely useless and you need a different model like mine. Okay, so that's what he's getting. And this rhetorical trick has been used plenty of places. So one last thing, you might be confused. So Einstein's theory of special relativity is a more general framework of which a special case is Newton's laws. All right. But then Einstein's general relativity is something else that has to do with gravity and the curvature of space-time. So don't get confused. I didn't get mixed up. That yes, when we say Einstein has a more general theory of which Newton's laws are a special case, we're talking about special relativity there. Okay. So you see why that's cool? And why it's like saying, oh, this is definitely an advance in science. That Einstein's theory, it wasn't saying Newton was just flat out wrong. And we need to replace the Newtonian framework with this completely different framework. He was saying, no, I'm giving you a more general framework. And in this special set of circumstances, in particular, when the speed of the objects we're measuring or considering is relatively low compared to how fast photons move, then my equations reduce to Newton's laws. So it's not that Newton was wrong. It's just that he was studying a special case that happened to characterize what we would observe normally in everyday life on Earth. So it's not surprising that that's what captured Newton's attention. And that's why it looked like his model was so awesome when humans first stumbled upon it is because it could beautifully explain everything that we had knowledge of. But over time, we saw glaring exceptions to Newton's laws and then Einstein comes along with a framework that can explain those exceptions also. All right, and so you can see why, oh yeah, this is definitely a better theory then. It can do everything Newton's theory can do and more, all right? So that's what Keynes said he was doing when it comes to economics. Is he's, I'm not saying the classical economists were wrong. And by the way, when he said the classical economists, he didn't, just, he didn't mean like Adam Smith and David Ricardo. He meant the free market economists up through the 1920s. And so Keynes is saying, their theories are correct. Like you say law, supply creates its own demand. And if there's a surplus glut in this industry, it'll be matched offset by a shortage somewhere else and prices adjust and blah, 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 and everything. There's no such thing as involuntary unemployment. Market's clear. And he was saying all that works well in the special case of full employment. But Kane said, you can come up with a situation in which there's involuntary massive unemployment and then all those arguments go out the window. And that's why you need a more general theory, which is what he was giving, he claimed. Okay. So again, he wasn't saying J.B. Say and all the other free market economists were wrong. He was just saying they're studying the special case of an economy that's close to full employment, where there really are just trade-offs and stuff like that. And if you have more investment spending, then that means you must have less consumption spending and vice versa. But I, Keynes, am studying a case of a more general framework. I can handle situations where we're not at full employment, in which case if the government runs a deficit, it doesn't reduce private investment. It actually increases private investment. 
even though that kind of result is impossible on the classical framework. Okay. Another economist who used this approach was Robert Murphy. Specifically in grad school, and I'm pretty sure I touched on this in my three-part series on Bumbavark on this podcast. And if not, I'm going to certainly cover it. At some point, Per Byland had a collection of essays in Austrian economics, and I did a chapter on the pure time preference theory of interest. And in there, I, I have this result. Specifically, when I was in grad school, a central part of my dissertation was I was trying to figure out how the heck can these mathematical models are teaching me in, at NYU be right? Because in those models, interest is the marginal product of capital. Like that's what the math, it just, it's there. They're not wrong. It is. Like you can deduce it. And yet, Bombavrik's verbal logic by which he demonstrated that no, interest is not the marginal product of capital also seemed unassailable. So what the heck? And I realized, oh, it's because the models that we're studying at NYU, where this result pops out, only have one good. Whereas Bombavrik's logic or his verbal reasoning, he's assuming that the capital good and the consumption good are distinct. And so once I realized that, I came up with a model and I wrote, so it was just a model with two goods. And then I wrote the equation for what the interest rate was and the equation included the marginal product of capital was in it, but there were some other terms. It was like the marginal product of capital plus something else, or actually I think it was minus something else, all divided by some other thing. And then I showed, notice that if the capital good and the consumption good are the same thing, then the one term in the denominator, or sorry, the numerator that's getting minus subtracted out is zero, and the numerator, or sorry, the denominator is one. And so the whole thing reduces just to the marginal product of capital. And so, you know, I was like, aha, you see? So my theory is a more general exposition. My formula handles the case of two goods. And if you just assume one good, then it reduces to the stuff that neoclassical economists erroneously believe is the theory of interest. And I'm showing, no, you guys actually have been studying a very special case, namely a world where there's just one good. And so the equation you derived in that world is very narrow. It doesn't hold in general. Okay. I was so excited when I came with that, I had to walk around the block, calm down. All right. So th there you go. So that's what Curtis is doing rhetorically in his thing. Related to that is he's got this analogy of a pencil standing on its point. And what he's trying to say there is, you know, just imagine it, a pencil balanced on its point could be in equilibrium, right? If you had it just perfectly balanced, but if it starts moving any way in any direction, it's going to topple, right? So it's in equilibrium, but it's not stable. The analogies I, I would use if I'm teaching that kind of concept of a class is you draw like a one hill and then a valley and then another hill and then picture a marble. Okay. And so if the marble is at the top of either of those hills, you know, you balance it just perfectly. So it's stationary. It's in equilibrium, right? It would just stay there. But if you nudge it either direction, left or right, it's going to just roll down the hill one way or the other. And so it's not a stable equilibrium. In contrast, picture the marble in the valley between the two hills. And, it, you know, if it's initially motionless, just sitting there, it's in equilibrium. It's not going to move. But then you can nudge it either way. 
And then what happens? Forces get set in motion that bring it back towards the valley where it originally was. So not only is that marble in the valley at equilibrium, it's in a stable equilibrium because it's not just that it, it's going to stay there if you don't disturb it. Even if you do disturb it slightly, there's like processes that bring it back, that restore it. Whereas again, if it's at the top of the either hill, then it's an unstable equilibrium. Okay, so what Yarvin is saying, I believe, so this is what I'm less confident of. I was certain I knew what he was talking about with the Newtonian-Einsteinian analogy. With this one, I think what he's saying is that the libertarian society of the kind like Rothbard envisions, yes, if you could be there somehow, it would be an equilibrium, right? If you had private defense companies and law, uh, you know, private police agencies and court systems and all this stuff, there's no taxation, there's no strongmen, every, you know, all the guns are distributed very uniformly among the members of society, all the tanks are, every second house owns a tank and all this kind of stuff. Yep, that's an equilibrium. It could exist like that day in and day out. And as long as nothing changed, it'd be fine. But if some external state invaded or if one company just started merging with its competitors and you got nudged away from that initial equilibrium, it would just snowball. It's not that forces would automatically push it back towards that original equilibrium. Instead, it would just snowball like, a you know, if a little bit of systematized institutional aggression got a foothold it would just grow and grow and grow like a cancer until eventually you'd have a state again. All right, so he didn't say all those words, but I think that's kind of what he had in mind. And so that's why Yarvin is saying the libertarian framework doesn't work. You need a different one that's more robust, that it explains more scenarios. And if you have institutions that are built according to this model, that they're anti-fragile. They're I'm borrowing a term from uh, Nassim Taleb. That you don't want it to be that, oh, yeah, it works so long as nothing goes wrong. But if anything goes off a little bit, then it's whole thing collapses. Okay, so that was, you're probably thinking, well, gee, Bob, if that was the short exposition in order to get us up to speed, what would have happened if you gave us a long one? Okay, so with all that in mind, let us go ahead and play an excerpt from the Curtis Yarvin, Dave Smith appearance on the Michael Malice You're Welcome podcast. Libertarianism at its best, and I pretty much read all of Mises and Rothbard. They're amazing, amazing writers, especially Mises. And the problem with libertarianism for me is that it's a little like Newtonian physics in that it's sort of correct in its own regime. But outside of this classical regime, it becomes visibly incorrect. Actually, it's incorrect everywhere, but normally you can ignore the extra term. And the way I usually describe sort of the extra term in this is I say that a kind of a libertarian paradise is an unstable equilibrium, like a pencil standing on its point. And libertarianism is essentially the rule of law and nothing else. And, you know, the rule of law is extremely desirable, but what has to precede law is order. And so order is essentially the arbitrary force that violates the non-aggression principle that is needed to basically keep an unstable equilibrium at center. If you go back to the pencil standing on its point, you want to use as little force as possible to keep it standing upright, but you can never have zero force there. But if the pencil is on its side, then you need a lot of force to lift it up. And so 
imagine, for example, what it would take to turn Venezuela today into a libertarian paradise or Haiti today into a libertarian paradise. Wait, can I interrupt? I got to ask you a question just as to clarification, not to argue. Sure. When you're saying paradise, do you mean paradise in the sense that it's going to be like a platonic ideal or do you mean the sense that it's going to be problem free? Certainly a platonic ideal. And one would imagine the platonic ideal as mostly problem free. You know, the problem, of course, is that if you define it as problem free, then you have no way to deal with problems. And when you basically start with a political situation that is a very large problem, such as the situation in a very third world country like Venezuela, where authority is deeply distributed, aggressive power, the power to violate libertarian norms is deeply distributed around the state. It is impossible to even define whether certain forceful actors are state actors or non-state actors. And so you basically say, well, do I think that Venezuela could function under the rule of law as Mises and Rothbard envisioned it? Yes. But does that end state define the means of getting there? No. Do the means of getting there transcend the ideal of the non-aggression principle and the rule of law? They do. So they're basically like, essentially, in a state of peace and order, the non-aggression principle is extremely sound. When you're outside a state of peace and order, when you're in a state of war and chaos, the thing, you know, before precision balancing the pencil on its point, you just want to get the thing off its side. And imagine suddenly your pencil's the size of a telephone pole. And yet, even if it's the size of a telephone pole, there's this like beautiful libertarian observation that I could hold this telephone pole-sized pencil on its point if I had a ladder and I was standing next to it just with my hand because I would counteract even the slightest movements. That's why you can hold a really heavy motorcycle up if you ride. So you sort of imagine, basically, when you say, okay, I have a theory of pencils that applies both when the pencil is on its side and when the pencil is standing up. Okay, so there you have it. So now, what are some of my responses? All right, so first of all, I'll be real quick on this one. Not a huge deal, but just I'm going to be pedantic here. I think Dave, he had two general responses to what Yarvin said. And in the interest of brevity, I'm not doing this to, as a disservice to Dave or anything, but I think I, just this podcast is already going to be kind of long just because I'm already 25 minutes into it and I haven't even gotten going yet. So I'm not going to play Dave's response, but... He made two separate responses. One is that he said something along the lines of, I don't see how this type of argument invalidates the NAP, the non-aggression principle. Because it seems like you're saying, Curtis, that we can imagine situations in which we would violate the NAP on the front end in order to prevent worse violations of the NAP in the long run. And so even if that's true that's still upholding the NAP as like a valid principle. Like that's the criterion of success. That's how we're deciding whether or not something is a good idea or not. Like we're saying, should we violate the NAP? And we're saying only if it means we avoid worse violations of the NAP in the future. So how is that saying that the NAP is a bad benchmark? All right, so that's one argument he made. And I think that doesn't work. I, don't, I think he just gave up the game if that's what he's saying. By the way... That's fine. Like, if that's what the reality is, and Dave says, no, I'm thinking it's okay. And that's how I want to handle situations like where, yeah, you're out in the woods and you see a cabin and 
you're starving and you break in and steal the guy's food and you leave a note saying, here's my number, call me when you see this and I'll pay you back once I get back to civilization, that kind of stuff. Technically, I violated the NAP, but you know, I felt it was worth it. Or crazy scenario, like aliens show up and they say, unless you guys earthlings sacrifice 100 redheads named Joanne, we're going to blow up the planet and arguably, well, do what you got to do. That's violating the NAP, unless the Joannes all volunteer. And so maybe Dave just would just bite the bullet and say, yeah, that's fine. I'm not saying the NAP is an absolute thing. And that's okay. But it's not typically how it's presented in standard Rothbardian analysis. It says that to initiate aggression is immoral. It doesn't say unless, you know, there's greater utilitarian benefits in the long run or unless that minimizes violations of the NAP. So at the very least, I think you'd have to say the way a lot of Rothbardians throw the NAP around is this absolute principle, that's wrong. Okay, if you're going to defend it the way Dave did on that first strategy of defense. A different strategy that Dave used, which I think is much more defensible or, or valid, is, by the way, if, if you didn't buy what I just said there, change it to something that you don't think is right, right? Because, for example... With utilitarianism, that's what happened with me. When I was a utilitarian back in college, arguments along the lines of, oh, if people actually just tried to do what maximized their happiness, they wouldn't end up being happy. So therefore, utilitarianism must be flawed. And I thought like Dave at the time saying, no, that's silly because you're saying the reason that's a bad strategy is it doesn't make you happy in the long run. So doesn't that, aren't you being utilitarian if you're saying the way we're going to evaluate a strategy is to see does it make you happy? But no, but it's because it, if you try to follow it itself, it doesn't work. So that's the issue. And so, so if you're not a utilitarian, that makes sense to say, no, no, I believe in natural law. And if we all just followed natural law, we'd actually all have better consequences too. And so it's not a, you know, there's not this huge discrepancy. Or if you say, oh, if the government just tried to promote everybody's safety by violating their freedoms, we would end up being less safe. Right. So that shows it's not a good idea for the government to just go around and single mindedly try to promote everybody's safety, whether from terrorism or airline crashes or whatever, at the expense of people's individual liberties. Because not only do we think that's wrong for deontological reasons, but it also would make us less safe. Right. And so doesn't that show that having the government adopt that strategy is a bad idea? So, likewise, if Yarvin has argued successfully that, oh, if we single-mindedly just said we're not allowed to violate the NAP, and then by us doing that, it allowed for rampant violation of the NAP, that's a pretty good argument to show that must be a dumb idea. Okay. Now, a second line of defense that Dave gave that I thought was much better was he said that even if it were true that, yes, in some particular historical episode, for example, the communists taken over uh, Russia, that maybe if we had earlier intervened and just taken some people out, even if that constituted a violation of their rights at the time, and that that would have spared the Russians and the rest of the world all sorts of misery, even so, that doesn't mean right now in the real world, us going forward with uncertainty that we can just go around taking people out because they're reading Karl Marx. All right. And so I think that's a much more defensible statement to say that. So even if Yarvin is looking around and saying, oh, wow, look at all these instances in history 
where these wishy-washy, you know, manby-pamby little boys who refuse to do the adult job and crack some skulls because, oh, I believe in free speech or I believe in people's rights. You know, they should just been real manly men and done what had to be done or do what had to be done. (laughs) And things would have been a lot better, duh. Even if he wants to say that in retrospect. And by the way, we don't know because you would still need the alternate universe, right? It's not out. You can't just say, oh, this happened and then this consequence happened. So as long as we just tweaked the first thing, then we can confidently say what the new timeline would have yielded. No, we don't know that. But in any event, like for example, people often say things like, oh my gosh, look how bad the Holocaust was. It's a good thing the U.S. intervened. Otherwise, more than 6 million people would have been killed. 6 million Jews would have been killed. And maybe, but maybe not, right? It's not obvious because one could argue that the reason the German people went along with the horrific policies of their government was that they knew the whole world was trying to take them out, right? And the way I try to motivate that to people in case, like, what are you talking about is the United States set up internment camps for Japanese Americans. Would the Roosevelt administration have been able to do that had Pearl Harbor not happened? To just say, you know what, folks, we're not at war or anything, but just as a precaution, why don't we set up massive concentration camps and put a bunch of people in there just because they happen to be Japanese? They wouldn't have been able to do that. All right, so people let their government get away with a lot of stuff if they're worried that people are going to invade them. Okay, so anyway, if there had been a campaign to more vigorously, because by the way, it's not as if there were no government sanctions against communists in history before 1917. That's not the case at all. And so anyway, if the argument is, oh, well, they just didn't harass them enough, it's not at all obvious to me that actually that would have taken care of the problem. But in any event, even if it did, Dave's point is, yeah, maybe you can, with hindsight, make that call, but that still doesn't mean you have enough information to be able to violate people's rights going forward. What I said on Twitter when I was saying that I think Dave was right, if that's the defense he was making, is, you know, these goofy thought experiments where it's, oh, you had a time machine, you could go back in time and you saw Hitler when he was a little baby. What if you just drown him in the bathtub? Wouldn't that have been good for the world? And so let's say you say yes to that. And I wouldn't say yes to that, but let's say you did. It still wouldn't follow that you would say, hey, is it immoral to hurt babies? And someone would say, well, yeah, in general it is, but I mean, not all the time. Cause like, you know, what if I had a time machine and go back and kill baby Hitler? No, because you don't have a time machine, right? That, that has no relevance to the question is it immoral to hurt babies who are just sitting there doing nothing to nobody? The answer is yes, it is immoral to hurt babies who are just sitting there doing nothing to nobody. You can't just say, well, yeah, but if we could guess and say this baby's probably going to grow up to be a bad guy. And so why don't we, that you don't know that. And no, you don't get to hurt a baby on the off chance that maybe you think he's going to do something bad. Okay. So that's that. Hey folks, let's take a break from the exciting analysis to discuss the upcoming debate at the Soho Forum on Thursday, January 26th of 2023, Lawrence White is going to be debating Frederick Mishkin. The resolution is, replacing the Federal Reserve with free market institutions would significantly improve the economy's money, banking, and financial systems. As you can imagine, Larry is in the affirmative and Mishkin is in the negative. So as far as I know, there are still tickets available. Go to thesohoforum.org 
to get your tickets if you can be in town. Again, this is January 26th. One last thing I'll mention in case you don't know, Michigan is a big deal. He has a very popular text on this stuff. So it was a coup for Gene Epstein that he was able to get Michigan involved in a debate like this. So we will see how Larry does against the big gun, Frederick Michigan. Now, having said all of that, a guy in my MeWe group for the Bob Murphy Show, and you can go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute, I think, if you want to get in on the fun. I won't use his name because I don't know if he wants me to, but he brought the point, and others had brought this up too, but especially since he brought it up, let me make sure I don't miss it, that sometimes people overstate what the NIP prohibits. And so it's here I'm elaborating. This is more than this guy said, but he's sparked this line of inquiry. It's not crystal clear how you handle this in a Rothbardian framework with the NAP, but if somebody comes up to you on the street and they pull a gun out and they point it at you and they say, I'm going to shoot you in three, two, one, and you see their fingers start to squeeze the trigger, at what point are you allowed to use violence against that person? And I think it's before the bullet from their gun pierces your skin, even though, you know, there's a quite literal sense in which, oh, that person hasn't initiated aggression against you until he's actually caused physical harm, which doesn't occur until the bullet breaks your skin. And yet some could reasonably argue that, no, I think he's initiated aggression, at least the point at which the bullet leaves the gun and it's hurtling towards you. All right. So, and then, you know, you could even say, you know, like, well, like what if he's standing on a trap door <laughs> and that's not in your house? Like it's a trap door that's unowned property somehow and you have the ability to, or maybe you're out in the forest and there's this big vine on the ground that he's standing on and you can yank that thing and it, you know, will trip him. But he might like smack his head on a rock when he falls. So if you just did that for no reason, like you'd be initiating aggression on the guy, but he's pulling his gun out. Do you have to sit there and wait till he actually fires? Well, maybe it's not loaded. Maybe he's kidding. Okay. So we don't need to solve that problem right now, but you can see there is a gray area that you could full-throatedly, wholeheartedly endorse the NAP, not just like as a rule of thumb, but just like, no, 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 I am a hardcore fanatic when it comes to the NAP. I make, you know, Walter Block look like a sellout. But still, that doesn't mean you have to sit there and let a bullet pierce your skin before you can respond, okay? And so if that's the case, well, then when it comes to a group agitating for a violent expropriation of the expropriators, it's not necessarily the case that that means you just got to sit there and do nothing except write letters to the editor against them until the point at which they're grabbing you and setting fire to your estate and whatever. Okay, so again, this stuff gets awkward really fast. You know, <laughs> I don't want to end up saying uh, just because someone voted for Joe Biden, that means they're ready for the Nuremberg trials. But on the flip side, that also doesn't necessarily mean that you got to sit there and do nothing, if, even if you're a total respecter of the NAP when there's communist agitators who are getting ready to take over Russia. Okay, so there's that. 
Okay, but let's take Yarvin's analysis. Well, he also gives an analogy, or not an analogy, an illustration. He says the Rwandan genocide. And so here, just to give a little context, I asked my eldest son, who's compared to me an expert on all matters of Africa. He actually is. I asked him, I said, can I say that you're fluent in Swahili? And he said, I think he said he's semi-fluent. I don't have, I don't have my phone on me. Otherwise, I could check his text exactly. But he knows a lot more Swahili than I do. I think Jambo means hello. There's also a famous phrase for no worries. Okay, so Yarvin makes it sound like there was this rare exception where the Western government supported the big man in Rwanda because he cracked down after the genocide. And so my son pointed out a couple of things. So for one thing, no, Western governments has supported all sorts of big men in Africa before 1994 and after. So that's not like some weird exception. And also, it's not like there was a state of anarchy first and then Moranans are running around chopping people up with machetes. And then, oh, thank goodness, some guy came along and formed a state out of the ashes and put down the violence and established law and order. That no, there was a strong government before and during the genocide. And actually, politics were involved in sparking the genocide and the Rwandan military was intimately involved with it. Okay, so it's, at best, Yarvid is saying, if you had a really powerful state whose military helped engineer a genocide, then you would need someone to take control of that same government apparatus and turn it off. Right, but that's not the picture that Yarvin painted. He made it sound like we had decentralized anarchy and widespread violence, and then we needed a strong state to come in and smother all the opposition and restore law and order. And that's a little bit off. Not a little bit. All right, so there's that. An easy one is if we want to say, okay, suppose we had a free society that was Rothbardian, and then some neighboring state comes in, isn't that an example of how we'd have this unstable equilibrium? And no, I disagree with that. That, as I argue in my work, in particular, my essay on private defense and the pamphlet chaos theory, the claim is that other things equal if a given group of people arrange their military defense in a voluntary fashion, it will be as efficient and effective as humanly possible that introducing coercion into the provision of defense is counterproductive, just like you wouldn't say, oh, wheat production is really important, and so that's why we need the state to run that sector to make sure our people have enough food. Yeah, a free market works for like TVs and ice cream and stuff, but when it comes to like basic foodstuffs, then you need the state to run it to make sure there's enough. No, that doesn't follow at all. Precisely because it's so important, you don't want the government messing with agriculture. And so likewise, because military defense is so important, that's the last thing you want the state to be involved in. Let the state be involved in bubblegum. They screw that up, no big deal. If bubblegum is of lower quality and higher prices than it needs to be, eh, okay. But you don't want that to be the case with military defense, particularly if you have an aggressive neighbor. Then you really want to make sure that your defense is as efficient as it can be. And so how do you do that? You let it be provided on an unhampered market, okay? So the existence of outside states who are willing to use conscription and taxation and 
violate the NAP and so on, that doesn't mean a group of people who want to defend themselves from such a state would do well to mimic their behavior. Right? So that's not an example that fits Curtis's pattern. And then even though taking his own examples on their own, because I think he, oh, he cited uh, Pinochet as well. All right. And so the idea is, oh, couldn't you have a situation where there's just a lot of corruption and different groups are engaged in violence and you just kind of need somebody just to rise above the rabble and just kind of put his foot down and really just slap everybody and get things in order. And if he's got to make an example by pushing a few people out of helicopters, well, got to do what you got to do. And then, you know, he can enact radical shock therapy reforms like letting the currency float against the dollar and slashing subsidies and privatizing state-owned enterprises. But, you know, there's going to be a lot of pushback for stuff like that. And it wouldn't work to do it in a nice democratic fashion where you build coalition. No, there was too much opposition. These commies had their foothold and everything. You just needed some right-wing fascist to come in, crack some skulls and move the needle on economic liberalization. What can I tell you? And so he makes that kind of argument. Okay, so here, I mean, notice the rhetorical trick where only certain options are allowed. Okay, so again, that example of Pinochet's regime is supposed to discredit the ideal of liberty or, hey, we should try to do things in a voluntary fashion because they're saying, no, no, situations like that, you see how naive that would be. So it's still true that if, you know, whatever the Pinochet government did, that, oh yeah, they had trade liberalization, they cut subsidies, they, I think they let the currency float, they cut taxes, they maybe reduced tariffs and stuff, but they also jailed the opposition parties and whatever. If instead of doing the particular suite of policies that they did do, if instead they had done a different combination of policies that didn't involve cracking down on dissidents and what we consider to be rampant violations of civil liberties and so on. And they could do much more aggressive things like get rid of taxes altogether, privatize all the state-owned industries instead of just a few of them, tie their currency back to gold, or actually just get the government out of money altogether. Because in other words, it's not like Pinochet introduced a minarchist society, let alone an anarcho-capitalist one, right? He didn't completely dissolve the central government. Okay, so you could imagine an outcome that was even more beneficial to those people than what Pinochet gave them. Even though admittedly, you know, Pinochet is probably better than if a bunch of Marxists were running the show. And so the way Yarvin or somebody is going to get around that is just say, well, no, that, that wouldn't be politically feasible. And you can't do that. I'm not allowing that. It's either got to be Marxist or Pinochet. You got to pick one. So, you know, okay. But I mean, by the same token, I could just say, okay, you got to either shoot a hundred innocent people in the head or 50, which one? And you say, well, I don't want to do either. He said, no, no, that's not the game. You can't pick neither. You got to pick one. He said, okay, I guess pick 50. They say, aha, I thought you believed the non-aggression principle. You just shot 50 people in the head. What's wrong with you? Silly NAP worshiper with your fetish for rigid absolutes. You say, well, you, but yeah, you, you told me I wasn't allowed to pick the, okay, so, so yes, if you're just going to declare that, hey, there's lots of times we just got to kill a bunch of Marxists. Okay, but I, I'm going to need more than just references to particular historical episodes because I don't, 
I think in those situations, there's a lot of other things that could have been done. Now, you could start getting real complex and say, well, it would involve the strong man giving up his power, like if he dissolved the police or something. And a lot of these things too, it would be stuff like, like maybe not so much, I'm not as familiar with the situation for Pinochet, but like in South American countries where there's like the cartels have a lot of power, one obvious thing the government could do rather than engage in like a civil war is just legalize drugs. But you say, oh, no, that's not on the table. And partly it's not because I know the U.S. is involved and they might not be cool with that. But you see what I'm saying? So it's in these situations, there's plenty of other pro-liberty things that could be done that would solve the problem. And it's just deemed like, oh, no, we can't do that. All right. So it's it reminds me, it's like um, if you say something like, okay, so suppose the U.S. government is going to lock up a bunch of people in federal prison. And then as a secondary matter, is the government going to give them food or not? And then you say, well, you lock them up in cages. If you don't give them food, they're going to starve to death. Well, right. So I guess given that you're locking them up in cages, you got to feed them. Oh, so you're for the federal government giving food to people, stealing from the taxpayers. I thought you were against that. I thought you were against welfare and food stamps. You get what I'm saying? Like that's kind of a a weird thing. Like, I don't think it's right to say, oh, so you really don't believe in that, or you really don't have a problem with the government giving food to people when it's a scenario where the government has locked people up and like eliminated their ability to feed themselves. And so again, right there, if you say, no, but Bob, you know, just face it, your principles don't work. I would say, no, the right thing to do would be to release those people. And you could say, well, what if the rapists and murderers? Okay, right. And then don't prosecute private security forces and legal systems from dealing with them, right? Because that's, you know, in my vision, my understanding of how the world works, that's what's going on. So it's not that, uh, oh, we need the government right now. And I should say the state, because <laughs> yeah, we said before the government is a more ambiguous term. The government makes it sound more like I'm talking about the state. But in any event, it's not that, oh, we need the state to crack down on rapists and bank robbers because right now the market hasn't provided. And yeah, maybe in a different kind of world where the market finally did do something about them. But in the meantime, the state's got to step in. No, 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 no. The state right now is saying, if we catch anybody trying to be the police or the courts, we're throwing you in a cage, especially if you start stockpiling serious weaponry in order to do that. We're taking you out. So no, the state violently puts down competitors to its role as police and legal system provider. And then it does a bad job of defending people from rapists and murders and whatever. So the pro-liberty respecting NAP approach would be to not use tax dollars to feed people in federal prison, to open up the prisons, and to not use stolen money to fund state action, which includes political entities at all levels of government in the U.S., from suppressing the market's natural response to crime. All right, so that's all entirely consistent. And so when people come along and say, well, no, 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 no. we're just going to stipulate at the outset. We're not going to allow the pro-freedom, pro-NAP move of allowing free market provision of police and judicial services. And we're not going to allow 
for nonviolent methods of dealing with criminals by just refusing to have federal prisons. We're going to have federal prisons funded by stolen tax dollars. And then we're going to put the people and we're not going to allow outside groups to come in and feed the prisoners because that would be an option too. If the you know, people running the federal prisons said, we're not going to use tax dollars to feed these people, but by all means, if their families want to come in or the Red Cross wants to come in, then they can feed them. That would also prevent the starvation. But if the state's going to say, no, 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 we're afraid they'd be handing them shivs or something. So, you know, you can't do that. They're just going to sit in their prison. And the only thing you can do is yes or no. Can we use stolen tax dollars to give food to these people? Well, okay. But I don't really think that's a fair refutation of the NAP. All right. So if you get what I'm doing with that whole prison analogy, that's my take when somebody tells me, oh, there was this historical example of some South American country where there was a military coup and they put in some pretty radical free market reforms even though they were pretty brutal when it came to domestic opposition to their policies. And uh, that kind of shows you how naive libertarians are. Like, no, I don't buy that. You're just kind of stacking the deck. And I think, like, if there was the strong man asking me for advice, I would give him what I think would do a suite of policies that would be better for his country than what Pinochet did. Now, if part of what I recommended was, oh yeah, you need to let your country break into five separate regions and then you're not going to be in charge anymore, the strong man might say, thanks, but no thanks. I'm going to get a second opinion. You know Milton Friedman's address. But that doesn't mean I'm wrong. Okay, the last two little points. So one is just talking about, again, these historical examples. When it comes to Somalia, that this is another good case study of how the conventional analysis is actually backwards. Okay, so when people say, oh, you're an anarchist, why don't you move to Somalia? Somalia under anarchy was better than Somalia under the state, right? The reason Somalia fell into anarchy was because the guy who ran it was a brutal dictator, all right? And so Ben Powell, I can't remember if he has a co-author or not. I think maybe he had a journal article with a co-author and then Ben just on his own, like popularized the results. But he has some cool stuff just showing all kinds of objective measures, things like some stuff you might like cell phone ownership went way up, but also like infant mortality went down and I think literacy levels went up and, you know, just various measures of a healthy country. And those all improved in the period when Somalia was in legit anarchy relative, not just to pre-anarchy Somalia, but also relative to a peer group of other countries in the region, right? So it's not just that Somalia did better in absolute terms, it did better relative to its peers. Okay, so yes, Somalia under anarchy was worse than the United States under, I don't want to say limited government, but <laughs> the government is not as bad as pre-anarchy Somalia's government. I'd rather live in Nashville than in Mogadishu, but it's Mogadishu under anarchy was better than it was under the prior political regime. So that's pretty open and shut, right? Like, like I said, Ben's got all kinds of cool statistics to show that. Now, what is not as easy to demonstrate, and I confess I'm just going on the accounts given by anarcho-capitalists, and so, you know, they might just be seeing what they want to see. But I've seen the case made that even with all the warlords and everything, that, you know, that's the, what the popular imagination goes to when it thinks of Somalia, 
is what happened is it was relatively peaceful, like the, right, these various clans that coexisted until the UN came in and tried to set up a central government. And then the different clans went hardcore into war with each other because they knew if one of these clans ends up taking control of this government that the UN is coming in and setting up, then they're going to be able to use that power that, you know, the outside forces are giving to really hurt us. So then, so be, in other words, when it was genuine decentralized anarchy, they didn't fight as much with each other because that, you know, it's costly. But, you know, and no one clan posed that much of a threat to the others because the power was dispersed. But then these outsiders come in thinking, oh, we, you can't live in a stateless society. That's uncivilized. We must help you. Then by them setting up this central organization of taxation and other forms of coercion, control in the schools and whatnot, and that was also going to be in league, receiving money and arms from the West. Well, then now all of a sudden it becomes really important who, which clan rises to the top. And so then they're going to go and engage in bloody warfare with each other. All right. So there's that element. So does that show it's naive to think the non-aggression principle is a good guiding policy? No, that, that doesn't, if anything, that seems to show this is why intervention is bad. That even if you had a group of people that were in anarchy, going in and trying to force a state upon them makes the situation worse. What else would have to happen to make the case for anarchy and to show that pro-state action is bad? Okay, and then the last point I want to make, kind of going back to Curtis's analysis. See, by the end of the episode, I'm referring to him on a first-name basis because I've come to know the guy. The analysis about the stable versus unstable equilibrium in this echoes somewhat one of the points that the guy in my private listener group made. Curtis seems to be arguing that, oh, if you got to a position of Rothbardian anarchy, that would be a knife-edge result and it would take a lot of effort to maintain it where the system moves a little bit off, off point, then you know it takes a lot of effort to get it back, whereas the status paradigm is much more robust. And I think it's actually the opposite. And here again, I'm, I'm echoing the point that the guy made in my supporters group. In particular, a dictatorship is actually very costly to maintain. The dictator has to have rigid control over the media, the schools. If somebody puts graffiti on the overpass saying, you know, the regime must fall, you got to clean that up right away. Really just police everybody's thoughts, police them literally somebody gets out of line, they got to disappear in the middle of the night, right? So it takes a lot to maintain a person in that, with that kind of power. Whereas to have a free and open society, that's spontaneous in a sense. You don't, it doesn't take a lot of extra effort to maintain that. And deviations away from it are, you know, do, there's like negative reinforcement. It just moves back towards where it started, Right, If you were in an initially free society where there were 15 different defense agencies and then two of them merged and then started engaging in lawless behavior rather than that snowballing, they just keep getting bigger and bigger and nobody can stop them. I think the opposite would actually happen. If you started out in a genuinely free society where like the court system was distinct from the law enforcement system, right? the judges were a completely different sector than just the private security 
forces that would go and quote enforce the law. You know, some private security force gains market share and then they start going around to businesses and leaning on them and making them start paying dues, even though they didn't really want to. The legal system would instantly deem them as criminals. And all the other, you know, the, the people who weren't yet in their sway would clearly avoid them and they would go with their competitors. And so I think it would pretty quickly turn into a, the rest of the society would be against them sort of thing. All the electricity providers could turn off the electricity to their buildings and whatnot. The banks could refuse to do business with them and so on, right? So if you started out where there was no one group of people that were dominant over everybody else, it would be hard to grow and grow and grow and just take over. It's not impossible, but you would have to, you'd be starting from scratch. So to me, that's what it would look like to say you have a, would have a system that was pretty robust and that if you could somehow get to that point, it would be a very stable equilibrium, especially because everybody would realize you don't need the state. In other words, right now, I think the thing keeping the state in existence is everyone assumes you need to have it. Whereas if you were in an initially free society with no taxation and relatively low crime and great education and no boom-bust cycle, and then someone comes along and says, oh, I know, why don't we take all the guns and give them to this one group and let them take as much of our paychecks as they want and give them a monopoly on the money and let them start bombing foreigners if they say that they'll keep us safe. Why don't we do all that and let them take over education? Everybody would say, what are you, out of your mind? That's a pretty stupid idea. So you would never allow for the creation of a state if you were already in a nice, prosperous, free society. Whereas if you're born into a state or a region dominated by a state, and that's all you've ever known, you might believe them when they say, oh, you need us. If you got rid of us, it'd be chaos. So you might just go along with it. All right, I will wrap it up there. Thanks for your attention, folks. And I will see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.